Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. So, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you to the Varke Foundation and to the Jacobs Foundation for having this wonderful set of talks on the learning sciences here. Uh, so, I'm here to talk about learning technologies in the global south with the belief that perhaps many of you share that AI and artificial intelligence can be used to benefit education for all students around the world. And my perspective is that this can only happen if we actively design it to work for all students. I'm doing this work here at Carnegie Mellon University in a very special place called the Human Computer Interaction Institute, where we bring psychologists, designers, and technologists together to work on large problems around the world, and particularly those in learning technologies where we design, develop, and then study and evaluate these technologies out in real-world settings with real learners. Some of the AI-based approaches that we use in our own research are as follows. Personalization, I'm sure all of you have been hearing a lot about personalization over the last few days and, and maybe have been involved with it as well. The idea of adjusting the pace or the timing of learning so that all learners can benefit individually. So this is a core technique that AI is used for. You may have also seen some work that involves virtual agents. So here's uh, one of our systems in which uh, we have an AI-based agent that actually is itself a learner, so the children who play with this system actually take on the role of teacher, and they teach the AI in the system how to do the mathematics, giving them new control and, and freedom of expression over their learning. Sometimes we take these uh, agents and we give them a body as well. So here's one of the platforms that, they, that we work with called the Cosmo Robot, where we add um, social expressiveness into the agent and actually the ability to talk back to the learners as they're learning how to program their little fun robot to do cool activities. And then finally, we also engage with more cutting-edge technologies, deep learning and sensing. So you can see here where we're able to sense all of the learners in the classroom and the teacher as well, uh, able to give feedback on, for instance, um, here's where the gaze of the teacher is looking. So are you spending most of your time only looking at the students who are sitting right there in the front row on the right side of the classroom? Or actually, are you engaging everybody in the room and giving everyone a sense that you are learning along with them? Um, so here's some, some of the technologies that we use in that sense. Um, so, all right. So uh, these are our technologies that we're uh, delivering and deploying around the United States. Why should we use a technology like that in a low-resource setting? Well, uh, what we see are, from these technologies, many beneficial outcomes for students' learning. 
And these happen across domains, across learner ages, and across different types of projects. So students uh, in grades two to four who gain three times as much fluency in reading uh, compared to typical reading practice. Our socially adaptive robots produce 30% more math learning for middle school students than robots that are not socially adaptive. Uh, we find that peer tutors, children in the classroom, give significantly better help to their fellow students when they are guided and supported by an artificial intelligent agent. And so we think that we should use these benefits and bring them to learners around the world. So we're done, right? We've got technologies, they work, this is fantastic. Technology is digital, we'll just scale it up and, and deliver it around the world. Actually, it turns out, as you might have guessed, I was going to say that this is not actually true. Um, we have learned many lessons about how these technologies need to be adapted and why in order for them to actually work for all different types of learners in a wide variety of settings. And I've been fortunate enough to do this in, I think at this point, uh, 12 countries, many field sites, sitting in classrooms and learning from teachers and students all around the world as we deliver and deploy these technologies and learn how to improve them in order to fit in these settings better. Um, so a few of the projects that I'll talk about today, um, we are engaged with the Global Learning X Prize uh, Foundation and competition, if you've heard of this. It's a, a prize in which teams compete to produce tablet-based education for learners in Sub-Saharan Africa, specifically Tanzania. And so we're one of the five finalist teams that are competing in this competition. Uh, you can see our tablet-based solution here. Um, I've also done work, here's a, a, a system in Chile where we're delivering intelligent tutoring systems to learners who are using desktops that were donated by an NGO so that the classroom had technology available. Um, and here's the most recent project in the Cote d'Ivoire where we're delivering a voice-based literacy system for children who have intermittent access to schooling. And we have learned many things from the study and deployment of these technologies. Lesson number one is the importance of context-sensitive design. Now, what do I mean by that? Of course, the first thing that everyone might think of is translation. Our AI needs to speak many, many languages, and this is the first thing we need to do is make sure that learners' home language is accounted for in our systems. But this goes even beyond this, so it turns out that um, while you might think of mathematics as a universal language, it actually turns out that there are many different forms of doing mathematics as well. So here's a, one way of doing long division in America, as described by a Norwegian learner who had immigrated to the United States, so you've got the eight on the left and then a little house sort of thing. Um, in Spain, on the other hand, when you divide by eight, you flip it around and put it on the right-hand side and use this little symbol. And then even within the same country in Catalonia, uh, we flip it around, the eight's still on the right, but now you've got an upside-down house that's dividing it from the left-hand side. And trying to think about all of these different ways to describe a learning process to learners, it's critical that our AI can understand and use the language of the learners and the classroom in order to present the right material to the learners in the right state of mind. 
So once we go beyond translation, we think about deeper issues. For instance, learner autonomy and motivation, and how does our AI deal with these issues? So here's an example of a system where, on the left-hand side, uh, you could imagine giving children a personal choice. You can choose one of these pr three problems to work on, an anagram-type problem. Um, on the other side, on the right hand, here's a problem that was chosen for you by your family. Um, and you should work on this problem. Now, most of the learning sciences research would tell you that we should go with the, pro the, the situation on the left, where learners are given their own personal choice and autonomy to make decisions about the type of learning that works for them. And in fact, in American and European settings, this does actually work the best. Learners uh, learn significantly more, and they do it in a faster period of time than with uh, the, the approach on the right. However, for learners in Confucian heritage cultures, family choice actually significantly improves their learning from engaging in these activities. And so what we find is that if we build our systems on principles that are developed from learners outside of our context, we might be disadvantaging the learners when we scale our technologies. Even more importantly, now we get to the models and algorithms underlying our artificial intelligence. So if you, <laughs> excuse the computer science for a second, but we need to first, in order to build an artificial intelligence-based system, collect a set of data from learners, and then from that data, what we do is a process called feature engineering, where we extract a set of features that tell us about how the technology should react to those learners in a particular situation. We then select the best and most predictive features from among that set, and then we optimize them until we come out with a list that looks something like this gobbledygook on the right-hand side. And this example here um, comes from the idea of help-seeking. So when should a technology provide help and guidance? When should it withhold it so that the learner is doing the work on their own? This is a really important topic, when and where and how to provide help in such a system. Turns out when you build these systems, these models, on our American learners here sitting in front of their computer in the classroom, they work amazingly well. So we can predict learning outcomes from this with you know, something like 76% accuracy. I took them to my Chilean classrooms, and it turned out, in fact, almost negative ability to predict when learners were going to seek help and when they actually gained uh, learning outcomes from doing so. Why is that? Well, it turns out the Chilean classrooms look more like this, in which we see three times more collaboration in the classroom than we do in, with our American students. And so what that means is that much of the help-seeking is happening offline. They're asking their peers, they're asking their teachers, and so the models that are driving the artificial intelligence just get it wrong most of the time. So point number one, context-sensitive design. You deeply need, or someone on your team, needs to know the context. We need to work with learning science principles that are built on students in your context, and we need to build our AI models on students in your context. So if you have a, a little architecture diagram over here on the right-hand side, this is the, the software that you're building. 
My point here is that context needs to be at the center of it. We really need to have that as a critical port, part of the software design from the very beginning. All right, point number two, physical infrastructure, which is something that our software developers don't always think a whole lot about. But the first thing that might come to your mind is something like electricity, right? So we need electrical grids, we need the other sort of infrastructure in place for these things to work. And in fact, oftentimes when we're going out and running studies, we need to bring our own power supplies with us, even in places where there is an electrical grid, because learners don't have access to this on a daily basis or, or it might go out. So we need to make sure that we have that access. More importantly, however, is the platform of choice. So I think earlier today we were talking about whether tablets are the right choice uh, for students in Malawi. Uh, one important thing to note is that AI can be delivered on almost any platform. And so in many cases, we've made choices to use the technologies that our learners and our families already own at home rather than trying to introduce a new device into the situation. So here you see the feature phones that we use in our project in Cote d'Ivoire where we deliver our AI-based system entirely by voice. Then, <laughs> why is there a motorcycle on my screen? Uh, it turns out that there are many other unexpected uh, um, instances in which we need to think about the physical infrastructure that supports our underlying technologies. So here is an example from our project in Tanzania in which um, the Wi-Fi connection that we had in order to download uh, our students' data and provide them with the right next step was so uh, spotty that we ended up hiring motorcycle drivers to go around with a USB drive <laughs> and bring the new set of data along with them and carry them around uh, individually. So often there are these unexpected um, situations that one must account for uh, if we are actually to provide technologies that work on a regular basis. And so this is a, a point that drives home the idea that the physical infrastructure is something that should be planned for and investigated ahead of time in order to make sure that when we're building our software architecture that we think about the device that we're using, the interface that's being used here, and additionally, the communication opportunities and necessities that we have in order to have delivered the things that are needed for an AI-based technology. The example of a motorcycle driver also takes me to point number three, which is the idea of a human infrastructure that's critical for these technologies to succeed. What do I mean by that? Well, you've, of course, all of you here believe in the value of teachers, and I do too. So teachers are a critical part of the environment that we're using in order to make sure that these technologies are delivered in a way that delivers success for our learners. So uh, I think we heard earlier, if you were here for um, Dr. Dumont's talk, that 
teachers are able to provide a number of factors in the classroom that our students need above and beyond the technology. And so sometimes that's about motivation, sometimes it's about even more in-depth and particular support, or sometimes it's about coordinating the learning activities that are happening in the environment. And so what we find is that teachers can provide different types of support than the AI technologies can. Oftentimes, however, they're not considered in the design of our technologies, and therefore there's no uh, interface between what's happening in the system and what's happening with the teacher in the classroom in order to bring these two together. Something that we often don't think about beyond the teachers, however, is other peers in the classroom. As I noted before, in many uh, low-resource settings, peers and siblings, other companions, are a critical part of the support structure that our learners have in order to uh, raise the, the outcome value of their learning. And so what we see when we deliver and deploy and study these technologies in these settings is that peers can provide a source of support for these students in a way that allows um, the explanations of the system to make more sense to learners who perhaps uh, need an alternative way of thinking about a problem. So a peer can explain a mathematics problem in a way that the system cannot, uh, or can help you get sufficient practice and motivate you to get through the problems in a way that uh, sometimes our systems are not able to do. So, Again, if we build peer support directly into our technologies and put it at, as a fundamental part of how students engage with the system, we harness the value of that uh, support structure as well, uh, above and beyond the technology-based support. Here's an example of a set of parents who are also providing support to our learner at home after school. Now, in many of these cases, it turns out that our parents don't necessarily have the skills that are being taught by the system. So one might think, well, uh, what is the value in having parental support here when the parents themselves don't know the content? Turns out that in this particular study uh, in the Côte d'Ivoire, even for parents who were not literate, when they were present in order to provide support to our learners who were, who were engaged in learning literacy through the system, our learners answered 10% more questions correctly, despite the parents not being able to provide them with the actual answers to the questions. Now, they made the same number of calls, they answered the same number of questions, it's just that they were actually able to do more with the parents' support. So you can see here uh, the way in which parents engage with their children at home after school uh, with these technologies. And another thing that we find is that many times in these cases, parents are busy. They have other opportunities. They, they need to be on the job. Uh, they may need to travel. And yet, there's still a community of support around these learners that we would be um, 
remiss not to engage. So here in this picture, what you see is an aunt who was visiting the family who did actually have the literacy skills to be able to support these learners at home. And so she's actually taken it upon herself. You can see in this picture, uh, the children are learning with the phone. They're talking through the problems and the questions that they're working on, some rhyming patterns uh, that support them in gaining phonological awareness with French language. And the aunt is actually writing out some new problems for them to work with on the board and supporting and enhancing the work that they're doing on the phone. And this was happening uh, constantly with various support members, uh, whether it was older siblings, it was aunts and uncles, it was neighbors, anybody who had anything to bring to bear on this situation was providing their own input to, in order to help the children advance in their schooling. And one of the, our interviewees, as we were talking with them about why this was happening and how they expected to help, told us that everybody needs to bring their own grain of salt to this situation, right? Meaning that everyone has something to offer to children's education. And so this is often the most neglected part of the AI systems that we build, is the ability to actually harness the power of everyone in the community in order to enhance our learners' uh, um, state of mind, their emotional and affective experience, and additionally their learning as well. And so in addition to having context at the center of our software architecture, building around the underlying physical infrastructure and the needs of the, the, um, the environment and the variety of resources that are available in our particular context. Our recommendation is to, from the very heart of it, build the community, peers, parents, teachers, and others into the infrastructure as well so that the AI provides opportunities for learners to connect with these others in their environment. Okay, so I've gone through three principles. First, context-sensitive design. Second, making sure we account for and deliver the right physical infrastructure in our environment. And third, that we make sure that our AI is accounting for our human infrastructure as well, one of our most valuable resources. When we say low resource settings, sometimes we forget the resources that are actually there in these settings, uh, in, uh, despite the fact that there may be a lack of electricity. So these are our three principles that we've learned uh, from all of the research that we've been doing. And so the follow-up question is, what do our systems in low resource settings look like in the future? Is it something like this with cameras in every classroom and uh, sensors and, and deep learning that are providing support for the, the teacher? Maybe, but maybe this isn't the case. Maybe our systems will look different in places with lower uh, physical or monetary resources. However, this doesn't mean that they're going to be any less valuable and that we can't bring those benefits of AI to these learners across these settings. So we're still waiting to see what the future holds for our technologies, but I believe in the value of AI in order to bring it to them. 
So what is this going to take in order for this to happen? Well, first is infrastructure uh, and investment. It is not the case, unfortunately, that our technologies are going to be able to um, be provided for free. The idea here is that you get what you pay for, and while technology seems at first glance like something that is a very inexpensive way uh, to scale um, to new experiences and, and new environments for learners, it actually takes a lot of investment in order to make these things work in the way that they were intended for the learners in our population. So technology shouldn't be the choice that we make just because it's low cost to deliver a new piece of software. The second idea here is that we need training. It is also not the case that we can deliver and deploy these technologies and then they magically work in our settings. Nope, in fact, what we need is an extensive set of training so that the people in these environments understand how to use them, why to use them, where to use them, and how they can enhance learning for our children. And even in the United States, in Europe, across the world, we see this to be the case. So many times when we introduce a new technology into a school system, it can take up to two years before we see the benefits of that technology begin to transform the schooling environment. And we shouldn't expect it to be any different in places uh, where there's higher need. So investment, training, and then finally, all of you. <laughs> I really believe that we need everybody here in this room. We need the educators, we need the ministers, the administrators, uh, we need the technologists and the, the technology developers. We need everybody to be in on understanding how to deploy and develop and to make these technologies successful in contexts around the world. And if we do that, we can transform learning with technology for the generations of the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, ma'am. I thought that was a really very insightful presentation. My name is Choyosi Akirile Ogunshiji, and I come from Nigeria. Um, I work for PassNow now, which is the most used uh, mobile learning platform in Nigeria, um, given the level of poverty and deprivation and how all of that is leading to crime and terrorism in our country. I'm sure you hear a lot about Boko Haram in the news. Yes, we um, do. I wanted to, to just touch on Given that Nigeria has just taken over from India as the country with the largest amount of poor people in the world, um, and we, we realize that terrorism is like, is, is spiraling, is snowballing, is a ripple effect of poverty and lack of education. How do you think that AI can you know, facilitate education within low-income communities such that nobody is left out? Yes, absolutely. So I think there are a number of roles for AI in uh, combating these types of problems. And some of them start at a very fundamental level. So the ability to um, start at an early age 
and improve uh, basic skills, literacy outcomes, uh, numeracy outcomes for learners so that they have a chance at better economic opportunities in their environment is number one. And so not always something that we think about. Um, sometimes we think about uh, providing uh, older learners with entrepreneurship on opportunities. These are also really good ways uh, to get our learners out of poverty, but starting from the fundamentals from early education and understanding that AI can also help at a very young age, I think is really important. Um, however, then of course there are ways to work towards combating um, uh, the spread of uh, some of these philosophies as we get to an older age where learners have access to the internet and to outside opinions and voices and are able to converge and convey with people who are of the same uh, ideological spectrum as they are. And so this is something that I know we're working on with Facebook, with Google, with all of these other companies that are realizing that this is an issue now and working to combat these problems with AI-based technologies that can identify and find these learners and allow us to target them with additional educational opportunities where they need it. So I think there's both at a fundamental level of basics, learning, providing educational opportunities for those who are out of school or who do not have a traditional opportunity to access schooling, and then we also need to combat it at an older age where uh, learners are accessing the internet and engaging with others in these uh, activities there as well. Yes. Oh, uh, sorry, well, over here. Okay, thank you very much for the presentation. My name is Soji Megbomo uh, from Nigeria and uh, a global teacher finalist, 50 finalist. I want to talk on uh, allowing the student to decide the type of learning that works for them. So I asked this similar question in my class and uh, because I teach computer science and mathematics. So the student said, they are tired of writing theoretical notes. And they said, they want uh, digital uh, devices they want a, uh, a learner is you know, deployed through technology. And I said, that's fine. But with the environment we live, I teach in a very low-cost environment uh, uh, with students uh, from a pro background. And uh, what I can do at that time is I said, OK, I won't deprive you of this opportunity. OK, I have a student that studied mathematics and studied computer science. OK, for computer science student, what I can only do for you guys is, OK, I'm going to um, see how we talk to one or two people, so, and uh, I informed my principal about it. Uh, we got some, uh, we got just 12 computers for 90 students in my school uh, from a church. And I said, okay, uh, what I can do for that is that I'm going to put your parents on a WhatsApp group. So I took up that uh, decision with them. I took the parent permission and I put the parents on the WhatsApp group. I realized at that point, uh, about 70% of the parents don't have a, an Android or a, a WhatsApp-enabled phone. So that's another challenge. So, but I, I kick off without a WhatsApp group to engage the students while they're in school and to also engage them when they're out of school. So we started that. And uh, we, within a short of six months, the student in the computer science, they started developing 
thinking beyond the levels that we're doing in class. I'm having an issue with the other class that don't have these opportunities. And I, I said, okay, what can I do further? The student who are also in the computer science, okay, I can only afford, I bought one virtual reality where I need to travel to where there's internet, download uh, learning content into my phone, then as a student to explore. Then I look at the differences that brought to my classroom within that six months. My student developed a mobile, the reticle of a solution to reduce maternal mortality in the, in the community. I said, wow. So this is what technology can do for me in my classroom if I give the opportunity to the student to do, to actually you know, decide the kind of learning that works for them. Yeah. But it is not just enough. The resources I have, some are not getting into, some are not working with us, some are not you know, developing with us in the same space. Some are, the math students are left behind because there's nothing I can do about that case. But this student, there's a little I can do about them. And I, every day I, 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 I cry to out of friends for support to ensure that we can have tablet. If it is not tablet, uh, a mobile phone whereby I can use this to drive my content across to the student when they're in school and when, when they're home with, it, with their parents. So my challenge is that how do I make this, how do I make this you know, uh, 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 a possible uh, solution available for this student, even in that low cost environment, because it's becoming a challenge. And uh, the student, this is their choice. They said they want a digitized learning deployed to them. I have the resources. The medium is a problem. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm, I'm not sure if that was a comment or a question. <laughs> it was a wonderful comment. And uh, I, it sounds like you're doing things uh, very right. So um, when we have a small number of tablets for the number of students in our classroom, this is where the teacher comes into play and we need to organize our activities such that uh, collaboration happens so that uh, it's not the case that you have you know, 90 students sitting here and only 12 students are engaged, right? If our technologies don't have collaboration built in, which is the point I'm arguing for, teachers are there and needed to make sure that that collaboration happens. It sounds like you're reaching many of your parents at home. We know that parents are fundamental for, for developing literacy skills, for developing many of these other skills at home. If they don't have the WhatsApp group, there are other ways that we can engage our parents as well. And so um, finding ways to do resource sharing, uh, finding ways to engage uh, parents and other community members um, through networks, so spreading the word across uh, parents through the technologies that they do have are some of the ways that we can get around this until we have technologies built that actually account for the realities of your context and setting. at a thing can do tank in Turkey. Um, I want to um, ask you uh, what you think about the tapping the potential of AI for teacher professional development, empowerment, as well as uh, their professional uh, learning communities. Um, you're leading one of the pioneer um, institutions in this field. To what extent do you think this, is, this constitutes a priority for the academia and for the industry vis-a-vis -vis, um, interventions that directly target uh, children, not that I see them completely differentiated, and I know there are a lot of complementaries in between, but um, primarily focused on teachers and their own needs. Is this a priority yet? And to what extent actually the industry is interested in, in engaging further on that? Thank you. 
Yes, that's a wonderful question. I would say to date, the vast majority of our technologies have been focused on students and teachers have been left to sort of uh, engage in very traditional ways of professional development. And in the teacher interviews that I've done, most teachers have been very frustrated by their professional development, feeling like um, it wasn't adding anything new to their lives or that they would, could be in a position where they'd be able to deliver all of the content for the professional development themselves. So I think this is an area that's really really ripe for our educational technologies to be able to provide a lot of value added. In order to help smooth that transition, how do we reduce those two to three years that it takes for technologies to get integrated in the classroom in ways that uh, require new pedagogies? I think technology is really ready to help teachers there. So that's one of the reasons why we're engaging in this classroom-based sensors work, so that teachers can get actual real data on what they're doing in the classroom. This is incredibly hard right now. As a teacher, you're paying attention to a thousand things, a million things all at the same time. And so actually what we find is that teachers are not very good at, um, at actually being able to e evaluate their own teaching, specific teaching behaviors. And so being able to provide them with data about what they've actually been doing, that in and of itself is enough to help them take those next steps, reflecting on it, engaging with other teachers on finding solutions for how they might improve uh, the work that they're currently doing. Now, of course, I'm, I'm talking about sensors and, and uh, very, you know, sometimes extensive technologies in the classroom, but even ways that we can structure and scaffold teachers' reflection on their own practice without sensors and, and crazy things going on in the classroom is an area where I think we're just seeing a lot of interest for technologies to move into and where there's a lot of promise. Hi, Amy. Uh, thank you so much for your presentation. I really appreciated the focus on including the parents, thinking about the culture, and including the teacher in the design, and I tweeted yes. you about that. Uh, and <laughs> Great, so uh, we can have a conversation on Twitter. Uh, but I do have a question because, uh, oh, by the way, Sean Robinson, so I'm uh, one of the Global Teacher Prize Top 50, like Soji, uh, from Canada. And so uh, a teacher from Canada, uh, I teach my students that there are no barriers, that with collaboration, making a connection to the right people, we can do anything. And I've found that my students have been able to do some amazing things, including helping out with uh, technologies in uh, Dominican Republic and making connections in Uganda and helping out in solar in Uganda. Uh, so what do you ask? Because you, you did make a call at the end there to say, hey, we need you. So what, what do you need from me? Because I can take it right back to my classroom in about a week <laughs> and we can work on it. That's wonderful, that's amazing. So one of the things that often happens is, um, is the research, the design and, and development happens separately from what's actually going on in the real classrooms. And one of the reasons for that is not that we don't want to involve teachers in our practice, but teachers are incredibly busy people. You have so many other things going on. We're asking for more of your time. If you can possibly spare it, getting engaged in research, um, working with technology developers and designers, uh, 
letting us come in and work with your classroom and find ways that we're not being disruptive to your class, but that we're actually providing value to your classroom is one of the top things that I would love to have from all of the teachers in my hometown, but it doesn't have to be local. Also, there are ways for us to work um, at a distance and collaborate on making sure that the technologies we design actually account for the values, needs, and practices of the teacher. So if there is a local university or if there are ways for you to connect with uh, researchers in the learning sciences, that's the first thing I would ask. Students who are excited about participating in research and finding ways to improve their own learning, that's fantastic and it sounds like your students would be a great example of that. And there is a Canadian, Canadian learning scientist, so yeah. two, two <laughs> Canadians, so grab them and start something. Okay, final question. Um, once again, I'm Andrews from Malawi. Um, my question is, or first, a small comment. This is brilliant, full stop. My, <laughs> yes, but then I like uh, when you're working in a country, this is part of curriculum development, right? Yeah. Do you, do you involve curriculum developers, one, in the development of the software? Number two, to what, to what, to what extent are teachers involved within mm. the explained steps? What about the, the National Examination Board? Because at the end of the day, the <laughs> learners have to be assessed, isn't it, and given a certificate. Yes. So to what extent do you involve these very, very important stakeholders? Thank you. Yes, that's a fantastic question. And uh, what I will say is that the, the answer depends on the particular project. But for instance, in the Cote d'Ivoire, we're working directly with the ministry. They've, for instance, given us the lists of words that they need to have included uh, in order for learners to be able to pass the literacy assessments that they're giving at the end of the year. And so we take those connections very seriously. We work very closely with the ministry. And in other cases, uh, we might work more direct, directly with a school board or with the teachers if we're working more locally in a particular district. So it really does depend on the context but, um, and, and the extent to which uh, various stakeholders get involved varies based on the project. But in every case, we make efforts to bring those stakeholders into our research. And that's, again, another call for all of you who are interested in and excited about these sorts of technologies. Uh, we know we're asking a lot for you to donate your time and energy to get involved in this process with us, but we want you there and we would love to work more closely with you in order to make sure that these technologies are ecologically valid, that they work in the conditions within the testing environments, within the school environments, and then that we're working to supplement this even when we're, we're working in the home environment. Yeah, thank you. Final question. Hi, uh, I'm Rong Wang from China. I'm professor of uh, education finance at Peking University. And first of all, there's an invitation. According to the map you just shared, it seems you haven't been to China to no, do your research. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to uh, invite you uh, sometime to go to China because right now we have an ongoing research project at the uh, Institute. And actually, last year we published a book of which I'm the editor in chief 
and uh, we have done some research towards education technology unicorns in China, and I concluded that actually they're very important, there are a lot of promises, but somehow the capacity is not up to the promise. Mm -hmm. I think the companies mostly kind of have made impact, first of all, to teach students how to take exams, uh -huh. and then to provide more teaching resources to teachers in remote and uh, rural schools. Yes. So somehow, um, I mean, there are a lot of uh, fanfare and a lot of advocacy to say, oh, AI and so on could make the China's education system to be more student-centered, but somehow it's still not the case. <laughs> and uh, so sure, and we'd love to uh, work with you more. And uh, actually, we have already hired some postdoc, uh, you know, with a PhD in a deep learning, machine learning, uh, to work with our team. So right. I think, uh, and he would be able to talk with you about machine learning, deep learning, that I find very difficult to understand. Oh, that's <laughs> all. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think this is an excellent point, and I would love to work in China as well. But everyone here has been bringing up the value of teachers and the importance of teachers in actually being able to successfully deliver an deploy such technologies and uh, you're right that the promise has not always been there uh, been fulfilled and one of the reasons for this is we haven't been giving enough training to our teachers for them to understand how to shift their practices in a way that match what the technology wants them to do so until we do that we can't expect them to completely overhaul we need to help them uh, and we need to work with them as well Thank you.